Good morning and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumpter, and today we're going to be talking with Kevin Parker, who is the CEO of HireView, the video interviewing and assessment company. Kevin, how are you? I'm I'm terrific this morning. How are you, John? I'm I'm on top of the world. That you know, the pandemic gives me my best possible life. I I don't have jet lag, and I'm cooped up in a house with my favorite person. It couldn't be better. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> you know, I think some people have have described it working from home, and others have described it as living at work, and and the two are very different. I think. Yes, yes, it's it's um, when 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 you love the work you do, everything is play, and when you um, don't like the work you do, everything is work in this new world. Mm-hmm. So so please please take a moment and, and introduce yourself and tell me the story of how you ended up at Hireview. Uh, glad to be here and, and glad to share it. Uh, you know, I joined Hireview uh, as a board member about five years ago and uh, was, was board chair for about a year and, and started the company started a search for the successor for our founder, Mark Newman. Uh, and you know, one thing led to another, and I, I stepped in as CEO about four years ago, and it's been a great, uh, great journey ever since then. My background has been uh, technology for you know, longer than I want to mention on air here today, but I was CEO at a company in the, in the D.C. area called Dell Tech uh, for a number of years and was uh, – uh, co-president and CFO at PeopleSoft for a number of years as well. And so I've been in the software industry and in the enterprise software industry, uh, gosh, since the 90s at, at some point. Uh, what really appealed to me about HireVue, drawing on my PeopleSoft experience, is I really understood what the company was all about in terms of hiring, in terms of interviewing, and and democratizing the process for, for people on a global level. It was really exciting to join the team. Yeah, HireVue... Uh, spent a lot of time getting its um, value proposition right. They, they were so far ahead. You know, today you can't you can't run a hiring process without video interviewing. When HireView started, that was that was a twinkle in the eye of a god that nobody had actually ever met, and and so mm-hmm. it, it was a long hard slog to get to where they are, and. Along the way, they picked up um, IO psychology and assessment capabilities and built it into some interesting AI. And then um, there's been some serious bad press about that. So, so help me understand what's going on and what you guys are doing. Sure, and, and maybe a little bit of background too, because we we solved one problem. We were opening the funnel, the hiring funnel, to more people than ever before, but inadvertently created another problem. No one could watch all these video interviews and and do it consistently and fairly. And about five years ago, we expanded our IO psychology team to really try to bring assessments, hiring assessments, into a modern age and and move away from the traditional paper based you know, 200 question type, you know, true false uh, questionnaire and, and replicate what interviewers were actually doing in person and listening to the answers and evaluating the candidates based on the answer that they were giving to the question. 
Uh, so we developed the technology to do that. We added about a year and a half ago now uh, game-based assessments as well, so a cognitive assessment based on playing a game or understanding, uh, you know, spatial relations and things like that. So what we've really tried to do is use that uh, to help companies interview broadly and then down-select very, very quickly. The, the controversy, if I can address that, has really been around the role of video in that. Uh, and obviously the world is very attuned to facial recognition algorithms and, and you know, particularly in areas like police work and things like that. And you know, conflated the, the idea that we were doing facial recognition, which we were not, to what was the role that video was playing in our assessments. And we've looked at that pretty carefully and the video adds some value uh, but the reality is the vast majority of what we're evaluating is the candidate's answer to a good open-ended question, uh, a question that's, that's really relates based on job competencies. But as I said, the video it really was the source of, at least from our perspective, the source of any controversy, uh, and that's, where, that's, that's what's really been driving it. So I heard... I heard um an internal study at Google that hasn't been published where they discovered that um, recruiters introduce about 30% bias into their decisions and AI introduces about 80% bias into those decisions. And the, the question there is, is how do you stop um, a, a machine learning or natural language processing tool from overreaching in its analysis. So, so there's, there's obvious interesting stuff in specific content that relates to specific skills and competencies, and you can catch that with sort of a keyword analysis or something close. But as soon as you start getting into the structure of people's language utilization and the patterns that you see there, you start to pick up preferences that are hard to shake out of the thing. So, so as you guys watch the evolution of your tool set, what, what's the method that you use for keeping the AI fenced in and staying in its own swim lane? So a few things that are important about that. One is we think about the, the role of adverse impact and, and uh, bias in the process. It's always front and center in how we look at our algorithms and how we look at what we're creating for our customers. Uh, the algorithms aren't self-learning. They're not, they're not modifying themselves over time. Uh, and before we, we put in uh, any solution for a customer, and let's say we're looking at a, at a, at a quality or an attribute called team orientation, so we'll look at all the, the answers, the words that candidates are using, and start to grade them on a bit of a spectrum. These answers are more team-oriented, and these answers are less team-oriented. We'll match that spectrum against what trained evaluators look at, and can we predict what a trained evaluator would, would be looking at in terms of team orientation. That's a really important part of the process. But we also take a, a few extra steps, and one of the most important ones is we look at any of those attributes and see if they correlate to uh, adverse impact, whether it's race, gender, ethnicity, age, a whole variety of things that, that are undesirable attributes to that, and we'll eliminate those. So if it turns out that, uh, you know, to create a common example, we use that men in interviews tend to talk a little bit faster than women do. After doing 15 million interviews, we recognize that men talk faster than women. If that's oriented, if that attribute is oriented towards both team orientation and gender, 
we have enough information in the course of the interview that we can remove that attribute completely and rerun the algorithm. So it's a very iterative process where we're constantly looking at what are we looking at in terms of the attribute and does any of that correlate to the undesirable outcomes that we're trying, working to avoid. And, and constantly look at that against what the EEOC guidelines say, what uh, the, 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 uh, the Organization Psychology Institute say. So we're really focused on eliminating any of those things that correlate to adverse impact. And we can measure that statistically, we can measure that arithmetically, uh, and satisfy ourselves and then ultimately satisfy our customers that we've got an algorithm that really focuses on the attribute we're looking for, and we've eliminated as many of the attributes that are undesirable as possible. So, so one last question, and then we'll move off of that. I have been studying this area for a long time, and one of the things that's interesting about compliance as a measure of bias is when you when you get to self-reporting in the areas of gender, um, race, and ethnicity, um, I've got a, I've got a friend. So so race race is not a binary thing. Race is a spectral kind of phenomena. And she is um, a diversity and inclusion powerhouse um, who is uh, married to a white guy. She is uh, a product of three grandparents who were black and one who was white. Um, and so when she talks to her kids about which box to check off on these forms, she says, well, of course you check off the box that will do you the best advantage. And uh, from what I could tell, uh, there's no economic incentive to choose a range of the options in gender and um, race and ethnicity. So, that, so the stats that you get are all self-reported stats that have obvious biases in them. And, and so to be able to say that we have solve the problem to the compliance level, that's interesting, but it doesn't solve the problem. And I wonder if you're thinking about how to look at the sort of definitions of race that are broader than, uh, and, and gender, that are broader than self-reported statistics. Because what you're trying to do is not be compliant with the EEOC, you're trying to remove bias from decision-making. Uh, that, that's a very good point, and, and we are to some degree relying on the, the self-identification, the self-reporting of the individual candidates. Um, you know, at an individual level, it, it, I think there's always those issues of um, misreporting or, or unintentional misreporting, if I can describe it as that. Um, but across a broad spectrum of candidates, we, we have a, a better sense of what's actually going on at the macro level in terms of race, gender, and ethnicity. We are, in, in some, degree, some ways, constrained by what the legal requirements are from a reporting perspective, and there's a lot of subtlety to that, as you're pointing out. Uh, and I think the other, the other component I'd look at is that for most of our customers, the EEOC is sort of a minimum threshold. We're, we're really trying to focus on what fairness means, whether that's racial diversity, gender diversity, cognitive diversity, something that we work very hard on. Uh, and so we're trying to provide as fair an outcome as we possibly can. Maybe I can back up for that because the root of all of that and, and what I think from a societal level, one of the things that we can do to improve outcomes from that perspective is just really rely on structured interviewing. 
And that's probably the primary value that we bring to customers, knowing you can interview 100, 1,000, 10,000 people, and they're all getting asked the same questions. They're all getting asked work-related questions and work-related competencies. And so it's a leveling force in that respect that we're all having the same experience. All the candidates uh, have exactly the same questions, and that introduces an important component of fairness uh, from our perspective and from our customers' perspective. That's interesting. So, so is the installation process that you <clears throat> um, help people get very specific about the data that they're trying to gather? So for every interview campaign, every job that you set up a process for, um, there is an intervention that, that uh, makes sure that structured interviewing gets at the right stuff. Is that, is that uh, part of what encourage, you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. We certainly encourage that for our customers. For all of our assessments customers, that's a requirement. We conduct what uh, you know an IO psychologist would recognize as a job analysis. What are the skills and competencies for that job in that particular company or a family of jobs in that particular company? So we're not looking for a stereotype or an archetype of an employee we're looking for someone that's going to be a good call center employee in your company and what are the competencies associated with that. And then the, the questions are really focused on those competencies. So instead of asking, you know, what would be your favorite tree or, you know, if you're a spirit animal, what spirit animal would you be? There's all sorts of ridiculous interview <laughs> questions out there. It, it's really focused on, you know, tell me about a team-oriented experience, what was your role and how did you contribute? Uh, and so good open-ended questions that a, that a trained interviewer would ask, that's the basis upon which we're conducting our interviews. So, so next question, and this leads, leads into the heart of our conversation. On or about Valentine's Day, every business model in every company in at least the United States broke, and every job in every company changed. And so you've got You've got this great body of historical data about what jobs are. My question is, if you're interviewing for people today and your historical data is at a minimum suspect, how do you do the job analysis that's effective enough to tell what you need to be interviewing for in today's market? My guess is that there are a lot of people hiring people for jobs that no longer exist in the way the job description defines them and that we're going to see pretty dramatic numbers suggesting that people are in the wrong jobs because we haven't taken the time to understand what's changed before we hire. I think that's an excellent point. And, you know, most companies are taking a retrospective view of what it took to be successful in a particular job. But think about the, you know, the vast majority of, you know, the professional workforce today is now working from home, juggling family requirements, perhaps kids, perhaps parents, uh, and still trying to, to be successful at a particular job. And I, I think as a result of that, sort of the traditional nine to five paradigm is going to break. I think we're, you know, work and, and, and family life and home life are, are blended together in ways that are are we've never seen before and, and don't look like it's going to go back to anything close to what it was for a long time. So there, you know, it's hard to look at retrospective data and know what the future looks like. Uh, we have, and, and we've published a little bit on this with our psychology team, 
tried to encourage employers to look broadly about what the job requires in addition to the traditional skills, what new competencies or what new attributes should we be looking for uh, in some of those individuals and who's going to be successful in that environment and who's not. That's great. That, this, is the, this is the heart of the conversation. You have done some work to identify um, the competencies that best predict success in remote work. What are they, how, and how did you do that? So we have, we have a, a, a team of professional IO psychologists that, that has started working on that with customers and done some research uh, on our own as well. And a few things come to the top of the list, and, and this isn't definitive and this isn't the only things that, that employers should be looking for, but obviously self-motivation, individual learning uh, is important. Conscientiousness is, is on that list as well. Uh, you know, that, with that blends work ethic and, and independence, working styles. You know, we're, we're all sort of on islands at this point, and the ability to work independently uh, is an important part of that. And adaptability, uh, flexibility and adaptability and opening to new experiences. All of our jobs have changed in, in, in ways that were unpredictable, you know, four or five months ago. And those are the qualities that we think uh, our research tells us employers should be thinking about in addition to the, the traditional things they were looking for for candidates. So, so that's interesting. When I think about the problem, I think about um, – how formal work has gotten. In order to have a meeting with anybody, you have to schedule it, and there's no bumping into them in the cafeteria or bumping into them on the way to the bathroom or wandering by their cubicle. So all of the all of the informal communication in the organization has either morphed or disappeared. And, and so it seems to me that there are organizational glue kinds of competencies that that we haven't noticed yet that we need, but, but that they're pretty obvious. The people who can provide that glue are going to be valuable in the way that managers used to be valuable, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've and we've got these, we've got an entire cadre of first level supervisors throughout the economy who have no training and no idea about how to run a remote department, and so, and so. So we're going to see churn there as we start to learn, and the things that we're going to learn have less to do with personal competencies and more to do with organizational effectiveness. Um, and I, I wonder if you're looking at this work and imagining that you're going to get a clearer picture over time. I think we will, and particularly from you know the definition of leadership and the qualities associated with leadership are different uh, in in the the Zoom work world that we all inhabit today. Uh, the style of communication, as you're pointing out, um, becomes unintentionally more formal. The the infrequency of informal communication is is uh, is absent from our lives, and we can only do so many Zoom happy hours or Zoom you know sort of birthday events with with teammates. Uh, but I think we do have to recognize that it's different, and leadership does change in, in that environment. We're early on in our, our sort of assessment of that. Uh, you know, the data is a little bit harder to get uh, for, for many of those things, but that's something we're going to be looking at in the year ahead. So, so I don't – is there a competency called figuring out work-life balance? Um, you, know, you know, many of the things that you identified as competencies are work competencies – 
Um, but work is happening in the family room. Um, and it's happening with the kids needing a snack, <laughs> you know, and the, and the dog barking. And so, so there is some sort of zen of dealing with blended environments that you'd think would pop up onto your list at some point in time. Yeah, and I think we're getting at that a little bit in terms of the uh, the, the flexibility and independence and working styles, and, and that's a little bit of what I was getting at, John, when I was talking about the, the nine-to-five paradigm. You know, I think that when we were commuting to work and we were at work at 9 o'clock in the morning or 5, it was different than the world that we inhabit and you're describing. And so I think as supervisors, as managers, and as leaders, I think we have to recognize that you know, there are just enormous challenges with uh, the world we're inhabiting today and the way we're working today uh, and constraining employees to a traditional nine to five schedule just makes it worse. Uh, and so I think incumbent on us as leaders is to have a lot of flexibility in how individuals uh, at, uh, react and attack the challenges that they have with as they adapt to this. So, so I assume that you're developing a body of structured interview material that allows um, your clients to ferret out these success, successful competencies for working at home. Is that right? We, we do, and we advise clients in terms of, you know, the, the question you might ask about team orientation would be different for a supervisor than a call center employee. And so it is. It's important to have the questions that are that are relevant to that particular role, uh, and design them for various levels of interviewers. So we have a, a variety of, of competencies that we can measure, from team orientation to composure, problem solving, general cognition, you know, service orientation, uh, and they change by role. But we've built up a body of knowledge, and that's uh, what drives our assessments technology as well. You remember early on in the pandemic, uh, March, early April, the great news story was the failure of the supply chain to produce enough ventilators. Because at that point in time, we were certain that COVID-19 was fundamentally a respiratory illness. Um, Just this week, we're starting to see evidence that asymptomatic people suffer brain damage. Um, and asymptomatic, 55% of people who are asymptomatic suffer brain damage, and 55% of people who are asymptomatic suffer heart damage. Um, and, and so we don't know. It's no longer ventilators. The solution of ventilators is off the table, really. You get them, uh, but there's not a shortage anymore because everybody doesn't get one. And we still mm-hmm. don't know what the thing is and what it does. We, we don't understand the problem yet. Um, and so we're in this weird managerial environment where, where the very nature of the business is uncertain and still you have to make decisions going forward. Um, um, how do you, the, the question is, how do you deliver your insights in a way that allows your clients to understand that this is a stopgap rather than a final resting place? And how do you Being help them change? Go ahead. Well, I think a few things have happened, if I understand the question correctly. One, 
for many of our customers, uh, you know, the, the, the access to video interviewing technology has helped them a great deal, but it suddenly jumped to the top of the list from a business continuity perspective. We couldn't have, you know, thousands of people come in to offices to interview for jobs. You know, several of our customers interview more than 1,000 people a day using our solutions, and, and you couldn't achieve that uh, otherwise without video. So we've had to respond very, very quickly uh, you know, we had a customer in Australia that had uh, a call center in the Philippines get quarantined, and they had to stand up a call center in, in the Sydney area in a matter of days. Uh, and so it's jumped from, I wouldn't describe it as a nice to have, but an important part of their process to, you know, a business continuity solution that, that has really come to the center of their recruiting process. And as we think about putting the world back to work, you know, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, the last several recessions, you know, lines of people with their resumes in hand standing outside the convention center looking for a job, hoping to get an interview. We're not going to do that. That's not going to be the way that the world gets back to work. And, and I think video and, and video technology and, and uh, structured interviewing assessments are an important part of how we're going to help them solve those problems. So I guess I'm asking, you, you know, there's, there's an old idea about how jobs work, and that is you have a job description. Um, it may or not be great, but the job description is the foundation of everything, and you interview against that job description that yields workers. Um, and we're in an environment where that core thing, what's the work, is rapidly evolving. And our understanding mm -hmm. of it is rapidly evolving. And so, so my question was really about how you keep um, the interviewing process germane at the kinds of scale that you're talking about. So, so how do you reintroduce feedback as the company learns that, oh, that thing we used to need, we don't need it anymore. And that thing we didn't used to need, oh, we need that now. Um, how do you hurry that process up so that you're, um, interviews remain market relevant to the highest degree possible. It's a really good question, and and we're we're at the sort of start of that process with many of our customers because one of the one of the important parts of our assessment process is to then coordinate that or to the extent we can with performance data. Uh, and by performance data, you know, did the employee, you know, make it through the first year? Did sales increase? Did customer satisfaction improve? So we're always looking for that outcome data. Uh, and particularly in this entire environment, we're trying to get that outcome data as quickly as we possibly can to make sure that our, our assessments and the interviewing process is remaining relevant to, uh, to the candidates that we're, we're interviewing. Uh, so that's an important part of the process that's still in front of us in many cases. Um, we are, for, for many customers, getting that information pretty early in terms of you know, are we hiring the right type of people? Are we interviewing for the right qualities in today's new world? Uh, but the performance data is, is something that we always look for and make sure that we're improving uh, the outcome for customers and that we're hiring the people that are going to be successful in the job. Cool. Great answer. So, so it's been a fantastic and fast and intense conversation. Any final thoughts before we um, close up the call? No, I think, I think, you know, one of the things that, that is really important to us too, is that as we look at IO psychology in general, um, and they've been studying this for a hundred years worth of research, 
that we know that structured interviewing and assessments are incredibly highly correlated to success in the job. And the things that are not correlated are years of experience, education, and a whole variety of factors that we usually use to, to hire people. And so the, I think the value here for us and for our customers is really creating a consistent process and a consistent and fair process. We, we started HireView 15 years ago with the goal of democratizing hiring, uh, and that's still at the heart of what we do every day. That's great. So take a moment and reintroduce yourself and tell people how they might get a hold of you. Sure. My name is Kevin Parker. I have the good fortune to be the CEO at, here at HireView, uh, and Parker at HireView, H-I-R-E-V-U-E.com is my email address. Thanks so much. It's been great talking with you. Um, thanks for taking the time to do this. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Kevin Parker, who's the CEO of HireView. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you back next week. And thanks again, Kevin. Sure appreciate the time. Thanks, John. Bye-bye now.